those who stand on the Lord's side. The great trouble we have with the imprecatory psalms is that we know what dwells in our hearts, isn't it? That we get personally angry. We get ticked off. We harbor grudges. And we have learned from the gospel that this is wrong and this is sinful. But, but the mistake we made in reading the, the, the imprecatory psalms is to think this is just a man who, who, like us, is having these emotions and reacting in personal rage. And that's not it. It would be a terribly wrong thing to use the imprecatory psalms to call down curses on our personal enemies. And there's absolutely nothing in common between the imprecatory psalms and the unbeliever who tells someone to go to hell. There is no equivalency. These are of different realms. What we have to realize is that we were once on the other side. And we stand tonight on the side of the Lord by pure grace. You see, think for a moment what's going on in the psalm. The psalmist is He's mesmerized by the wonder that you have searched me and known me. You know me through and through. You're with me everywhere. This is, this is glorious, he says. And this has been the delight of God's people from the beginning of time when Adam and Eve walked and talked with God and they rejoiced in the reality that God knew them thoroughly. But that didn't last. And when they rebelled against God and betrayed him treacherously in the garden, the fact that God knew them was no longer a joy to them, but a terror to them. And they hid from God and wished that he did not know them. They knew two things simultaneously when they sinned. They knew, number one, that they had offended a holy God whose holiness cannot be accommodated to fit with our sin. And they knew, number two, that God and his holiness had pronounced an eternal curse of death upon those who offend him and break his law. So they were shaking at the sound of God's voice as he came into the garden. And God, God rebuked them. But that's not all he did. God promised them deliverance from his wrath. And God in his great mercy reached across to that side of Satan And he pulled out of the camp of Satan, Adam and Eve, and brought them back to his side. And God drew the line where it belonged. And he established the antithesis, which is the dividing line. And God said, Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity, which means hostility or warfare. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he told the serpent, and between your seed and her seed. That was the beginning of the church. God bringing Adam and Eve back to his side and drawing the line and says there's going to be a conflict here. That was the birth of the church. One commentator writes on Genesis 3.15, this divisiveness, this hostility came from the Lord. He was not going to allow even this fallen creature to cuddle up in the bosom of evil The maker of heaven and earth refused to walk away from Eden, shrugging his shoulders and muttering, you win some and you lose some. No, he's the stubborn God who will set all creation ablaze with holy war in order to have a seed and a people for himself. We must remember tonight that the church of our Lord Jesus Christ was born when the battle line was reestablished, 
The church was born in battle. The church was born in conflict. And enmity, conflict, is God's gift to us. Because, dear brothers and sisters, if there is no conflict, then we're all destined for hell. Because we are all children of the devil. If there is no warfare, if there is no conflict in our hearts against the kingdom of darkness, then we're in deep trouble. Hatred for the kingdom of darkness is a gift of God and his grace in Christ towards us. We did not deserve to be put back on God's side. We deserve to be left to the devil and to God's judgment and to the covenant curse. And being put back on God's side would have been a complete impossibility if it wasn't for one man. And this is what the antithesis is really about. The one man. Because God said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This this warfare between the woman and serpent and their offspring comes to its climax in one. Jesus Christ. God would give to the woman a son who would do great violence. He came, Jesus Christ did, on a mission of violence to destroy the devil's works. To crush the serpent's head. To atone for our sin. To defeat death. He's the one who never went over to the devil's side. He he came saying, here I am to do your will, O Lord. And he kept God's law the whole way. He never went over to the devil's side. And he rejoiced throughout his life, didn't he? Christ Jesus rejoiced in the intimacy of the Father who knew him. that, That I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. This was his delight. But Christ also knew the anguish that David feels in the psalm here. Because Christ was attacked by the wicked. He bore the brunt of man's hatred for God. He bore the brunt of the devil's fury. And it's only because Christ was willing to suffer this, to endure this conflict, to wage this warfare, that we have salvation tonight. Christ, let's put us back on God's side. And now we can join David and say, Oh, Lord, it's marvelous that you search me and you know me. I rejoice in this, Lord. I would not hide from you, Lord. I want my life to be engulfed in your knowledge and love for me. But if that's true, then, that we delight in this fellowship with God, then we must be offended when our God is offended. And his conflict with the kingdom of darkness must become our conflict. And until Jesus Christ comes back and the conflict is over, we must live in a war. And so what I'm trying to say tonight is that the context of the psalm is the context of conflict, and the context of our lives is the context of conflict. And any church that says, you know, we're not going to sing Onward Christian Soldiers anymore because it's too militant, has, has lost sight entirely of where we are and what salvation is. If there is no militancy, there is no salvation. And so you see why a quarter of the Psalms have curses in them. Because you can't escape the war. And all pretended neutrality is a choice for the devil's side. 
And anyone who says this is an Old Testament thing, but now, now we have a lovelier Christianity in the New Testament, has not read the New Testament. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Come, Lord Jesus. These are not the prayers of vindictive spirit, but they are the groans of Jesus Christ. And they are the cries and groans that we make as we join him in the conflict. The curses of the Psalms are not the proud and haughty cries of the bitter, vengeful spirits that have been personally insulted and want to retaliate. God forbid that we would ever use these Psalms for that. But they are the heart cries of those who are grieved that their righteous king is maligned. And that the intimate fellowship they long for with God is impeded by the kingdom of darkness. And only those who are willing to suffer and who are suffering for Jesus' sake can sing these psalms properly. If we're not fighting for Christ's cause, we cannot and we may not sing these psalms. One author says, we conclude that the psalms are ultimately the prayers of Jesus Christ, Son of God, He alone is worthy to pray the ideal vision of a king suffering for righteousness and emerging victorious over the hosts of evil. As the corporate head of the church, he represents the believers in these prayers. Moreover, Christians as sons of God and as royal priests can rightly pray these prayers along with their representative head. This is really the most important thing that I can say to you tonight. And this, though we can't possibly unpack all that it means tonight, if we, if we could take this one thing with us, whenever we read the imprecatory Psalms, if we could say, that's the voice of Jesus Christ. It's Christ who's praying to the Father to do what the Father promised him, to put all his enemies beneath his feet. If we read every one of the curses in that way, that it's Christ Jesus crying out that God would cast his enemies beneath him, we'd be on the right track to understanding them. James Adams, in his excellent book, War Psalms of the Prince of Peace, from which I've gleaned a lot over the years in trying to understand these psalms, he says, if we cannot offer any prayer apart from Jesus Christ, How much less this prayer of God's wrath and vengeance. As we abide in Christ, we learn what it is to pray, not my will, but thine be done. We request not our own personal advancement or victory over our private enemies, but rather the advancement of his kingdom, that his enemies be destroyed. When the enemies of God attack us, we deliberately lay down the sword of personal revenge. If we attempt to avenge ourselves, we are still seeking our own way, taking things into our own hands. To pray the imprecations of the Psalms is to surrender all rights for revenge or vengeance to God. It means to be prepared to suffer and endure without personal revenge or hatred as Christ did. It involves being gentle and loving even when I am reviled and persecuted. 
It encompasses acknowledging in all my ways that God's cause is more important than I am. The conflict to which we are called is not our conflict. It's Christ's conflict. So when it comes to personal insult, we suffer. We bear it. But when it comes to the progress of Christ's kingdom, we pray, Lord, set Christ's enemies beneath him, that he may be all in all. So the context is kingdom conflict. But notice, secondly, tonight, the commitment. The commitment is devotion to the kingdom. Devotion to the kingdom. As God has set the believer on his side and the believer's enjoying the wondrous love of God, then the believer says to God, I want my love now to be a response to you. And that's what David is doing in verses 21 and 22. When he says, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I count them, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. He's saying, Lord, I, I want to love you as you have loved me. Who are these, these enemies that, that David hates? They're not, they're not some people who are struggling to obey the Lord but stumbling at times. No, these are God-haters who reject and spurn the Lord. He says of them in, in verse 20, They speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. These are people who despise the Lord, who have heard the name of the Lord, and who lie about it and slander it, who, or who put the name of the Lord on to go about it of a cover of their wickedness. These are, he says, bloodthirsty men who destroy their neighbors. All these things point to one reality, that these are the children of the devil. These are those who fall in the footpath of Cain. These are the seed, not of the woman, but of the serpent. And so David says, as the righteous king, Depart from me, you bloodthirsty man. I won't have fellowship with you. I won't have friendship with you. To do that would be to betray my Lord and King. David is saying, I hate them, Lord, because I love you. John Calvin notes, our attachment to godliness must be inwardly defective if it does not generate an abhorrence of sin. We cannot be indifferent to wickedness that breaks God's law. be worse than a husband who... Sees a man insulting his wife, and he stands there silently. It doesn't bother him at all. You say, don't you love your wife? Don't you care about her? No, David rises in defense of the Lord. I will not be friends with those who hate my God. Now, it's important to note all of that, because truth be told, we find it much easier to get worked up over people insulting us than we do people insulting the Lord, don't we? We're often quickly offended. Our ears are very attentive to anyone who says something about me. And yet when the majesty of God is ridiculed, denied, or ignored, it's easy to turn a blind eye. And so we can make compromises and we make peace with the enemies of God. And when we think of the enemies and when we think of these psalms, it's not just about some enemy out there. We're talking also about the enemy in here. 
1 John 2 warns of the worldly spirit. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Galatians 5.17 says that the flesh lusts against the spirit. That's the battle we face inside. James tells the believers, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. We have enemy inside, don't we? The enemy inside. And we are to oppose that enemy. Not to negotiate with evil. Or to stoke the flame of a holy hatred for our own sin. David is saying, I will maintain my choice. I will hate God's enemies. Even the enemy within. Or we've made peace with sin, then we have to confess it and repent of it. And so we can rightly pray with David at the end of the psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Right? Those words that have often been prayed are wonderful words. Try me and know my anxious way. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, not just rebellion out there, but let your kingdom come in here. Let King Jesus Christ come and scrutinize my heart and show me my sin and cause me to fall down and bow before him in every area of my life. But maybe we're saying tonight, but how does hatred of enemies fit? with the calling in the New Testament to love. Well, when God reveals in his word that he is good to all, he reveals that he's a God who sends rain and sunshine upon the righteous and upon the unrighteous. And Jesus calls us in the Sermon on the Mount to be like our Father, to be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect. Our Lord Jesus revealed himself as a compassionate Savior, He wept over rebellious Jerusalem. And he grieved that these these people would not recognize their Messiah and be saved. But the same Savior who did that taught us in Matthew 7 that he will declare to some, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And the God who provided his own beloved son to be Savior of the world is the God who tells us in Psalm 7 that he's angry with the wicked every day. And Romans 1, that he reveals his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness. And so we have to hold these two things always together, that God is a righteous and a holy God who will judge the wicked, and God is a merciful God, full of love and goodness, who provided a Savior. Now one way that people have tried to hold these two together is by saying that we, we are to hate the sin, but love the sinner. I've heard people criticize that phrase, but it has some truth to it. The reformer John Calvin wrote 500 years ago on this psalm, we are to observe, he says, that the hatred of which the psalmist speaks is directed to the sins rather than the persons of the wicked. We are so far as lies in us to study peace with all men. We are to seek the good of all, and if possible, they are to be reclaimed by kindness and good offices, 
Only so far as they are enemies of God, we must strenuously confront their resentment. Matthew Henry, the Puritan, wrote on this psalm that David was, quote, grieved to see their rebellion and to foresee their ruin in which it will certainly end. Note, sin is hated and sinners are lamented by all that fear God. We are to love our neighbor. We are to pray for salvation. And there is that emphasis, isn't there, in the New Testament, this day of salvation as the gospel goes out at Pentecost and God is reclaiming lives from all kinds of people across the face of the whole globe. We pray that the enemies of God might be converted and brought into the kingdom and receive forgiveness of sins and enjoy the delight of knowing God and being known by God. But we also recognize that the phrase, hate the sin and love the sinner, can be misused by some as a way of suggesting that evil is just some abstract commodity that floats around in the sky and has no peculiar attachment to any person. I was thinking about these things this week when I heard World Radio podcast replay excerpts of a uh, interview from June with Chief Justice, with uh, Supreme Court Justice Sonia. Sonia Sotomayor, and Sotomayor, and and they they had these quotes in there. They asked her, actually, they re, they actually played her voice, her giving responses to the question about the value of adversity in life. What's the value of adversity? She's she's expressed experienced adversity in her life, growing up and so forth, and she said that among other things, it helps you to forgive weakness in other people. She said we as humans do wrong things, but it doesn't mean we are horrible people. And so I began to get a little nervous and thought, well, how does this play out now then in the courts? If we're not horrible people, we just do horrible things. But she went on to say, I thought about this, I thought about it when I was a district court judge and I had defendants before me and some of them did horrible, horrible crimes, but I still had to look for their humanity. It didn't stop me from punishing them and some of them I punished very harshly. I was there to impose a sentence and to do it in a respectful way. Well, I was glad to hear that, that she recognized that, that in her view, she wants to think of people maybe as, I don't know, maybe she'd say basically good. She didn't say that. She said, we're not, I think, horrible people, she said. But she recognized that she can't just punish crimes out there. She must punish criminals. And she's not going to send crimes to jail but criminals. You see, David recognizes that it's not just wickedness, but it's wicked doers, because wickedness is embodied in beings. And in the end, it's not just sin and wickedness that God will send to hell, but wicked doers. Furthermore, tonight we should note that there are eternal enemies of God, And while we pray for the salvation of everyone we meet, and that is to be our calling. Is it Luther who said that we should earnestly desire the salvation of everyone we meet? We should look upon every life that crosses our path as an image bearer of God. And my greatest desire for them is that they would be a son or daughter of God, rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we recognize that there are some who are eternal enemies of God who will never bow. Satan and all of his hosts will never bow and never be saved, and the blood of Jesus is not for them. They are eternal enemies of God. 
But there are some humans too who will never bow. And what must be done then if there are eternal enemies of God? Well, finally, there must be justice. And so that brings us to the final thing tonight. If we've taken note of the context of kingdom conflict and then the commitment we need of kingdom devotion, I hate those who hate you, finally tonight I'd like you to notice the cry for kingdom victory, the cry for the kingdom's victory. Going back up to verse 19, David prays, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. David wants the wicked to be removed, to be destroyed, to be brought into judgment. Because wickedness is not an abstract power floating about, but it lives in individual people who serve that wickedness. And because some of these will never turn and be saved, what must be done? If Christ will be vindicated, and if God's glory will cover the earth, and if Christians will ever know a world of peace where we can enjoy God's fellowship, then they must be removed. They must be removed. A truce isn't going to happen. Peace isn't going to happen. Reconciliation won't happen. The peace will come through the horrible alternative of eternal destruction. This is not just an Old Testament thing. The covenant curses are alive and well. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the apostle says to the Thessalonian Christians, We ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations. It's encouraging the church because they're bearing the sufferings. They're bearing the persecutions. They haven't taken up swords to kill their enemies. And then he says, This is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Okay, so the this imprecatory psalms are not a way to escape suffering. They're not a way of getting out of suffering. Suffering is the path of the Christian church on earth. But then this is the comfort that he holds out to them. Since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with, with tribulation, those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. You see what the apostle does? He says, you Christians are suffering and you're bearing it. I praise the Lord. I boast of you. And I direct your eyes and your hope to the coming of the Lord Jesus when Christ is going to repay those who are troubling you with everlasting destruction. And he's going to grant you to be delighted in the presence of Jesus as he's admired among his saints. You see who's bringing vengeance? 
in those words of Paul, it's Jesus Christ. It's not the saints. Jesus, as reward for his redeeming work, is appointed the judge. And in the end, then the Psalms are not just authored by Jesus, they're not just prayed by Jesus, but they're fulfilled by Jesus because they're all about the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only reason that wrath of the Lamb does not have to terrify us tonight is because we trust that the Lamb was slain in our place. We see, brothers and sisters, All the imprecations of the Psalms have fallen upon Jesus. All the curses of the Psalm, that he should should be made desolate. The curse that the enemy should be put to shame. The curse that he should be cut off like a stillborn child. The curse that he should have no friends. The curse that he should be utterly put away from the presence of God and blotted out of the book of life. Came crashing down on Jesus. These covenant curses upon the head of our Savior in our place. So that we never have to bear them. It's only by trusting in this Jesus Christ that we have escaped the covenant curses that we deserved. But what shall we say to the Jesus who bore that curse for all of his people and now has many, many enemies who will not bow, who mock him and despise him and ridicule his work? When Christ has borne that eternal curse because there was no other way, do we say to Jesus now, find another way. Just let them off the hook. It's no big deal. No. We say, oh, righteous king. Oh, righteous king. Bring justice. Vindicate your name. James Adams writes, it is only right for the righteous king of peace to ask God to destroy his enemies. These are war cries of the prince of peace. War cries of the prince of peace. Brothers and sisters, Adams writes, the Lord Jesus Christ is praying these prayers of vengeance. The prayers that cry out for the utter destruction of the psalmist enemies can only be grasped when heard from the loving lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. These prayers signal an alarm to all who are still enemies of King Jesus. His prayers will be answered. God's wrath is revealed upon all who oppose Christ. Anyone who rejects God's way of forgiveness in the cross of Christ will bear the dreadful curses of God. Do you see it? Those who cut out these imprecatory psalms now and in their pride and pretension say, here we have a lovelier Christianity than Christ's Christianity. We're a more loving people than Jesus. We're a more merciful people than Jesus. You see them align the name of Jesus. Robert Louis Dabney, the Scottish Presbyterian, wrote decades ago, Righteous retribution is one of the glories of the divine character. If it is right that God should desire to exercise it, then it cannot be wrong for his people 
to desire him to exercise it. Let me translate that. If it is right for the king of righteousness to pray to his father, cast down my enemies, then it cannot be wrong for the church to join Christ in saying, Father, let Christ be vindicated. Let his rule be over all. Let all his eternal enemies be removed. And let him shine forth in the glory that he has earned. We don't need a lovelier Christianity than the one revealed in Scripture. We need to return to the Scriptures and learn why it is that on the last day, the judgment of Jesus will rejoice the hearts of his people. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. In this day of salvation we pray, and we work and we preach for the salvation of lost sinners. But we also long for that day. When no more will our king be insulted, but his righteousness will be all in all spread over the face of this globe. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We confess these psalms are difficult for us to understand how to sing and how to pray because, Lord, we are so often personally vindictive and spiteful. We pray you'll teach us how to hear Christ's voice in them how to pray united to him and for his cause and not our own. Make us willing to suffer. Make us charitable towards our enemies. Help us to long for their salvation. But let us never compromise, O God. May we hate those who hate you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.